Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archaeology News Podcast. This is your host, Philip Hansen. And please don't let the American accent fool you. I am, in fact, Danish, and I am, as of now, living in England, so I hope to gain that smooth and buttery British accent. Speaking of smooth and buttery accents, I cannot start the show without mentioning David Connolly, who was the host of the podcast for over 10 years. I know I have some very big shoes to fill, and I really hope that I can be half the podcast host that David was. However, without further ado, let's get to the stories. Remember, as always, the stories are gathered from various sources around the web. And to view the details of each story, as well as the sources for the stories, you can visit the Stone Pages website at news.stonepages.com. Now, we have some very exciting stories today coming from all over the world. From China, we have human teeth showing how Homo sapiens moved from Africa and into the rest of the world. From Bulgaria, we have the largest dolmen ever found. In Sardinia, we have a menhir being stolen and then recovered later. From Orkney, we have a very hot story in the way of a sauna. And from Britain, we have a story of the Bronze Age people mummifying their dead. No curse of the mummies yet, though. We will keep you posted if there are any. And last but certainly not least, we have another sign of Neanderthal intelligence and resourcefulness. That and much more will be available in this podcast. Now let's get to it. And now for the first Stone Pages Archeo News story, which is, of course, on Stonehenge, because what is the Stone Pages podcast without at least one Stonehenge story? This one focuses on the purchase of Stonehenge and how it used to be sold to the highest bidder. This is in part due to the fact that Stonehenge was part of the Amesbury Abbey estate, which was purchased by the Antipas family in 1824. Now, sadly, the last surviving heir of the family died in the first actions of World War I in 1914, and therefore the estate itself was put up on auction in 1915. Now, in the meantime, the Ancient Monuments Act had come into effect in 1883, but this did not stop Stonehenge from falling apart, one of the stones falling over, and some of them actually breaking in two. Now, legend has it that Cecil Chubb was originally sent along to buy curtains for his wife, and instead he ended up bidding on the stones, winning the bid at £6,600, which in today's money is £680,000, or €923,000. Chubb himself described the purchase in his own words as on a whim, which I gotta say is one heck of an impulse buy. I'm sure a lot of archaeologists will probably make that one nowadays as well. Three years later, Chubb actually decided to donate the monument to the nation, which earned him a knighthood. Now, sadly, few people actually know of Chubb and his actions and how they saved uh, Stonehenge at the time, though the curator from Stonehenge, Heather Sabir, do note that it is something very, very mysterious, and it is almost as mysterious as Stonehenge itself. And now for some young archaeology news, specifically from the Isle of Wight, where a five-year-old primary school pupil has found a Bronze Age arrowhead. The arrowhead was found behind Lanes and Primary School on cows and was dated to between 2500 and 1500 BC by archaeologist Frank Basford of the Portable Antiquity Scheme at the British Museum. He described it as a er complete early Bronze Age barbed and tang flint arrowhead, noting that while others had been found on the island, this find it was in extremely good condition and the best of its kind. The pupil's teacher, Miss Tara Hopkinson, said that her class was very excited by the find, stating that we've been learning about dinosaurs, and at first the children thought it was a dinosaur tooth. Cue collective sigh from the archaeology community. The arrowhead itself has been returned to the school and been put on display. Uh, To get an idea of what this or what the arrowhead actually looks like, you can go to news.stonepages.com where you can find the sources for all of our stories. Uh, And trust me, the pictures are absolutely amazing. 
the portable integrity scheme took the picture. So they have it from pretty much every angle that you need. And it is a very, very cool find. And of course, a big congratulation goes out to the uh, boy who found it. We sadly don't know his name, but congratulations anyways. I hope we've made an archaeologist out of you. And now for a story that you can really sink your teeth into, all 47 of them in fact, which, funny enough, is the exact amount that was found in southern China recently. The teeth are about 100,000 years old and are now challenging the modern conceptions of how Homo sapiens moved from Africa and into the rest of the world. The teeth were found as part of an excavation done in Dao County in the Hunan province in southern China and were found in a limestone cave, which is one among numerous that uh, dot the county. The excavation extended over an area of three square kilometers and uncovered not only the 47 human teeth, but also bones from hyenas, giant ex- extinct giant pandas, sorry, as well as other animals. However, no stone tools were uncovered, thereby leading archaeologists to believe that the bodies were dragged there from somewhere else by predators. Martin Torres, a paleoanthropologist at University College London, stated that there was no doubt that the teeth are in fact human, saying that their small-sized thin roots and flat crowns are typical for anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens, and the overall shape of the teeth is barely distinguishable from those of both ancient and present-day humans. Torres, as well as her colleagues, have published uh, the results in an article, and the you can actually find the link to that article if you follow the source for the story, which is news.stonepages.com, where you can find the source for this story, as well as all the other stories that we've covered here today. Uh, sadly, the teeth are so old, in fact, that the radioactive carbon that are that is normally used for dating could not be used, as it has completely disappeared from the teeth altogether. Instead, the teeth were dated through the use of calcite deposits. Um, and these actually date uh, the teeth to about 80 to 120,000 years ago, which, if we just put that in context, if we believe the oldest date, that is 120,000 years, places the migration of modern humans into China to about 70 to 60,000 years before the uh, modern humans actually went up into Europe. And also kind of to give you another time scale, uh, the oldest skeleton known before this it has been found in Israel and is believed to be about 100,000 years old and has always been seen as a failed migration. So this could really change the way we think about how modern humans moved into uh, the other areas. Sadly, none of the DNA was left in the uh, teeth, so you could not uh, compare the bodies found or the teeth found here with any of the DNA from modern humans in the area. However, it is believed that uh, the people who are in the area now actually share more uh, similarities DNA-wise with another culture of humans that moved into the area about fifty-five to 60,000 years ago. This was noted by Hoppen, who is a paleoanthropologist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig. He also noted that there is a possibility that they are older than 80,000 years, though... Um, this is mainly based on the presence of cavities normally present in teeth older than 50,000 years. However, he is quite unsure about that, and he believes that this will raise some eyebrows. It should be noted that the type of cave that the teeth were found in is a limestone cave, and these caves dot the landscape of southern China. So these finds should be seen as just the tip of the iceberg, and hopefully there are many more to come, and it is always nice when we find something that really challenges the way we think about modern humans and the way they move throughout history. And now back to England, where archaeologists have found an Iron Age settlement in Devon. 
Experts believe that the settlement unearthed in Devon is one of Britain's biggest and best preserved prehistoric settlements, with evidence showing several families living and working together on the land more than 3,000 years ago. It has been discovered by archaeologists as preparation for major building work on the site. Due to the sheer scale of the site, the excavation is one of the largest investigations of its type, and Andy Mays, who is leading the project, said what's fantastic is we're looking at an unusually large area showing a whole prehistoric landscape. There hasn't been a great deal of disturbance on the site previously and is in pretty good condition under the surface, so it's a question of targeting those areas of significance. Recent findings from the site include Iron Age roundhouses, as well as pottery and bone, which could potentially date as far back as 700 BC all the way up to 43 AD and maybe even earlier. Andy said, we found three houses which are likely to be Iron Age in date. We can see from geophysics alone that there were communities living and working on the site properly from the Bronze Age. The archaeologists are expecting to spend 10 weeks at the site and hope that the results will provide answers as to the lives of the people that lived and worked at Sherford in the later prehistoric and Romano-British periods. And now let's go to Britain, where some Bronze Age graves are giving up their secrets giving new clues as to how the Bronze Age people buried their dead. Recently, archaeologists in Petersfield Hearth have excavated several Bronze Age barrows, which all give new clues as to how the Bronze Age people of Britain did bury their dead. The area in Petersfield Hearth contained 21 known Bronze Age monuments, where only three of them were thoroughly uh, excavated. One of the barrows, Barrow 13, was found to have an unusual shape due to the fact that there was previous excavation in the area which dug through the middle and down below the subsoil with at least three arms extending out from the center excavation. However, the most interesting find from the excavation was actually what was missing, which was only present as two patches of hardened sand. One of the patches was the 38 and a half centimeters long, could suggest a leather bag with a large wooden handle on the back. This leather bag would of course have contained the wooden handles and the significance of the wooden handle uh, points towards the fact that people were cremated elsewhere and then brought to the site to be buried, showing that the site had a very great significance for the Bronze Age people of the area. Apart from the find of the leather bag and the wooden handle, there was also a find of a 22.5 centimeter long whetstone. This whetstone is believed to have been used to smooth arrow shafts, which is further supported by the find of 10 flint arrowheads, which are all in the intermediate stage of being made. And now, from our store in Petersfield, we will be going north to Thames in Oxfordshire, where archaeologists from Oxford Archaeology as well as Cotswold Archaeology have recently discovered a multi-period archaeological landscape, with significant remains from the Neolithic period, the Iron Age, as well as the Roman and Saxon periods. Now, as any good archaeologist, we will be going through this chronologically. So, starting with the Neolithic period, we have one of the more significant finds from the site, the discovery of a costway enclosure. These enclosures are quite important as there are only about 80 or so known in the country, and they also represent the earliest known enclosure of open spaces. They are generally believed to have been used for a range of activities by dispersed groups as they generally do not contain signs of constant occupation in the area. Looking at the one in Tem, it is built up of three concentric ditches around the area with a hinge monument in the middle. A small ditch dug closer to the Hens Monument and inside the enclosure is believed to be part of the later Neolithic period, but uh, so far nothing has been confirmed. Now, sadly, the site contains very little activity that can be traced archaeologically during the Bronze Age, but archaeologists do believe that the site held some importance to the Bronze Age people of Britain. It isn't until the early Iron Age that we get the first settlement on the area on the lower ground away from the Costway enclosure from the Neolithic period. Here, it, the Iron Age is characterized by its own substantial enclosure, as well as the discovery of roundhouses, a cluster of pits, and granaries from this period. 
During the Roman occupation, the site changed its function again with trackways leading up to the site of the old causeway enclosure, with its own enclosures built off of the trackways. These enclosures are believed to have been used for a variety of different activities due to the presence of at least six corn-drying ovens, a number of circular ovens and hearths that were built within these enclosures. One of the interpretations is that the site was an important center for processing the agricultural produce of the area. Following the Roman occupation, the site once again becomes a settlement. Here, the settlement is characterized by the discovery of 11 sunken feature buildings, all from the 6th and 7th centuries. Now, due to the fact that the town of Tem was founded during the Saxon period, it is believed that these 11 sunken featured buildings may have been part of the early settlement. Now, these houses are very characteristic of the Saxon period, with roughly rectangular pits that were dug into the ground, with a post at either end to support the symbol roof. Archaeologists believe these buildings were used for workshops, and indeed, they did contain many artifacts that are very characteristic of weaving, such as loom weights, bone pins, and spindle whorls. And now for a story on intelligence and resourcefulness, specifically those of Neanderthals. I think most people will agree that Neanderthals have always gotten the short end of the stick when it comes to both of those characteristics, which has led some people to believe that, for example, Neanderthals did not have the mental capability or the resources needed to catch or kill large, fast-flying birds. However, recent findings, some dating back to 2011, are actually disproving this idea. The evidence for these findings come from four European sites where talents have been found showing signs of having been worked. This leads archaeologists to believe that these talons may have been part of jewelry. Now, the talons from these birds can be categorized into two main uh, bird types, those of raptors, which are birds of prey, and those of corvids, which are carry-on scavengers. It should be noted that some of the raptors can also be carry-on scavengers. Now, the question is, of course, how did the Neanderthals manage to catch these birds? As is quite undisputed, we all know that Neanderthals hunted quite large mammals. The idea is then that the Neanderthals would purposely leave behind the carcasses of these large mammals and then wait for the carry-on scavengers to come and pick at the bones. When the carry-on scavengers would land, the Neanderthals would rush at them and hit them over the head or screw them with their spears. It is unknown when this practice first started, but we can conjecture that it may have happened as the result of one hunter staying behind and watching the birds of prey, hitting one of them over the head while they were busy with their feast. Now, this new hunting technique, as well as evidence of Neanderthal genetics, as well as other behaviors, have been the main focus of the Calpi Conference in Gibraltar this September, where they hope to study and perhaps bring new evidence about this enigmatic species that we know as the Neanderthals. And now for another story on how the Bronze Age people of England buried their dead. This one comes as a new study done by the archaeologists of the University of Sheffield who have found that the Britons may actually in fact have mummified some of their dead and it was maybe a more widespread practice than previously thought. The study was led by Dr. Tom Booth who worked with colleagues from the University of Manchester and University College London who found that the remains of some of the ancient Britons were consistent with pre with a prehistoric mummy from northern Yemen, as well as a partially mummified body from a peat bog in County Roscommon, Ireland. Now, archaeologists do agree that the damp climate of England does no favors for organic material, and that all prehistoric mummified bodies will have lost their organic tissue if they're not buried in a preservative environment such as a bog. And to address this problem, Dr. Booth said that our team has found, by using microscopic bone analysis, archaeologists can determine whether a skeleton has been previously mummified even when it is buried in an environment that isn't favorable to mummified remains. We know from previous research that bones from bodies that have decomposed naturally are usually severely degraded by putrefactive bacteria, whereas mummified bones demonstrate immaculate levels of histological preservation and are not affected by the putrefactive bioerosion. 
The team actually did a microscopic analysis on the bones of 300 people retrieved from 25 different European archaeological sites. And in most cases, they looked at the femur of the body. And from this, Booth said that 34 of these individuals were from the Bronze Age, and more than half of the sample showed evidence that the person had been buried immediately, but 16 had excellent bone preservation, compared with mummies from Ireland and Yemen, indicating that these Bronze Age people were mummified after death. Now, it is important to note that while this study does mark the first time that researchers have used this type of analysis to identify specific coronary treatments in archaeological bones, it is also a good reminder for all the other scientists that just because your site doesn't have Bronze Age bones, if we just use this example, without preserved tissue doesn't mean that the people in the area weren't mummifying uh, at the site. And it's actually probably, with this study, it's probably a good idea now to go back into the archives and take a look at all those good, well-preserved people, and then maybe we might actually find out that there are more mummified people. It, was, it would actually be interesting, too, to see how far back this goes and if there are any regional variants. Uh, thinking specifically of uh, the Petersfield story that we also covered, where they were apparently cremated and brought to the site. It would be fun to study in terms of trying to find out if there is actually a divide between where people are cremated and where people are mummified. And then, of course, that would bring up the good old archaeological question of identity and how people identify themselves to different groups. And now for our next story, we go to Scotland, where we find out that the Finns aren't the only ones who like to take saunas. Archaeologists in Orkney in Scotland have uncovered the remains of over 30 buildings dating from 4000 to 1000 BC, together with field systems, mittens, and cemeteries. One of the finds includes a very rare Bronze Age building, which experts believed could have been a sauna or a steam house. This could have been used for a range of activities such as rites of passage or spiritual ceremonies. It's also possible that the buildings were used for a more natural purpose such as a sweat house or sauna or other activities ranging from basic healing to a place where women could give birth or the sickly could come and die. Rod McCulloch, deputy head of archaeology strategy at Scotland, said this is a beautifully preserved site with lots of tantalizing clues pointing to its use as an important building central to the community who built it. We know this was a large building with a complex network of cells attached to it and a sizable tank of water in its central structure which would have been likely used to produce boiling water and steam which could have been used to create a sauna effect. What this would have been used for, we don't know exactly, but the large-scale, elaborate architecture and sophistication of the structure all suggest that it was used for more than just cooking. Whether its purpose was for feasting, rituals, important discussions, or maybe just for the same reasons we use saunas for today is something we don't yet know. This is just the start of an exciting but painstaking process of analysis and research work, but one which gradually adds to our understanding of what activities occurred here 4,000 years ago. The early analysis work suggests that the building is likely to be a burnt mound, which is generally compromised of a fireplace, a water tank, and a pile of burnt stones. Through experimentation and references to medieval Irish literature, experts have been able to deduce that the stones were roasted on a hearth before being placed into a tank of water, bringing the water to a boiling point and producing lots of steam. The hot water could then be used to cook large quantities of food, or for bathing, brewing, textile working, or any other range of activities. However, due to the hidden nature of the Orcadian building, Combined with its restricted access and the tightly packed cells, it does suggest a more specialized function reserved for the few instead of the many, and may actually, in fact, have functioned just as a regular sauna or steam house. However, it may also have been uh, consciously designed as a stage for ritualistic activities, perhaps in the form of a cult house or a sanctuary. The site is currently being backfilled in order to best protect it from the harsh Orkney winters, before hopefully being re-excavated next year in the spring of 2016.
And now for a story with some ups and downs, namely the theft and the recovery of a Sardinian menhir in Italy. The menhir in question is the San Nicola menhir, a standing stone from the Copper Age, that's 2500 to 1800 BC, located near Sarlocca in Sardinia. The menhir was reported missing last year by the Sacco Sarlocca archaeology groups. Even though the stone is 1.9 meters tall and 80 centimeters wide at the base, it did not stop thieves from stealing the almost one-ton stone. Luckily, the stone was found uh, as of the 25th of September this year in a sheep pen. The owner of the sheep pen has been charged with dealing stolen goods, and the stone has been re-erected and received the proper protection. Sadly, nobody interviewed the sheep, but I'm sure it, all of the sheep did tell the owner that it was a bad idea. And now, let's go to Spain, where the discovery of a new rock art points towards an earlier and more intense contact between Atlantic and Mediterranean cultures. The rock art, which is known as Algar dos Cebros, was discovered in the Costa de Castros region of Spain and depicts a ship which is propelled by both sails as well as oars known to have been used around the Mediterranean about 4,000 years ago. This differs from the contemporary ships of the Atlantic cultures, which were mainly propelled by the use of oars. One of the researchers, Javier Costas Gobana, studied the petroglyph and noted the petroglyph similarities to ships from the Aegean area, which are depicted on various archaeological finds. This was supported by another researcher, Maria Ruiz Galvez Priego, who noted the uh, ship similarities to Aegean ships, which were usually depicted on Cretan stamps, all of which from about 2000 BC. Due to the rock art being the only known depiction of such a vessel at the time, it definitely points towards a much earlier and much greater contact between the Aegean area and the Atlantic cultures. And now for another story concerning the dead Bronze Age people, this time from Omsk in southwestern Siberia, Russia. Here, two graves dating back 2,700 years have recently been excavated and are believed to be part of the Bronze Age, specifically part of an ancient necropolis still lying under the city center. The workmen who discovered the ancient remains immediately called the police and archaeologists who have been studying the remains since then, and one of the skeletons was buried with a knife and a buckle. While archaeologists were still studying the finds, they believed the graves to be part of the Yemen culture, which date back to about 700 to 800 BC. Experts believe the graves to be part of a Bronze Age necropolis which was previously disturbed 103 years ago when another building on the same site was under construction. That same building is actually under renovation as of now. During that time, five skulls along with an arrowhead, knife, and a buckle were found at the excavation. In 1959, the well-known local historian Andrei Palashenkov believed the site on the high bank of the Omsk River to be part of a necropolis, settlement, or possibly both. The excavation is currently being held by employees of the Omsk branch of Institute of Archaeology and Ethnography, the SBRAS, and is headed by Dr. Mikhail Kurosenko. And now let's go to Staffen in Scotland, where a recent excavation has unearthed several hundred pieces of flint, as well as a fragment of worked bone, all of which could give clues as to life in the area about 8,000 years ago. The finds were made in September during an excavation done by the University of Highlands and Islands, who were investigating a suspected Mesolithic building. However, this building as of now appears to be post-medieval, but may in fact actually have saved the Mesolithic finds underneath it. Now the finds are quite exciting. As I mentioned, they include a fragment of worked bone as well as several hundred pieces of flint. The worked bone is about 12 millimeters long and appears to have been burnt and deliberately shaped on one end of the uh, bone. The other end appears to have been drilled. Now whether or not this drilling is authentic, remains to be determined. Uh, the University of Highlands and Islands are hoping to do further analysis on the bone. If the drilling is authentic, it could mean that the uh, bone functioned as either a toggle or a decorative item for either a piece of clothing or possibly a necklace, which is quite exciting. However, the 
best bit, as far as I'm concerned, is the flint finds to the south of the site. The, these were made uh, through the use of test pits and actually include a lot of different items such as flakes, tools, and, as, and cores used to nap the tools. And these were all found in the old topsoil beneath the structure, which is very cool and actually gives a better idea of the activity on the site. Archaeologist uh, Dan Lee with the University of Highlands and Islands said that although the structure did not turn out to be prehistoric, it has protected significant evidence for Mesolithic activity below it. Hopefully we have enough material to ra- for radiocarbon dates and further excavation would be useful to better define the extent of the site. The UHI Archaeology Institute looks forward to working with staff and community trust on future phases of the project. So all in all, a very exciting find from uh, Staffan. It is important to note that the excavation done in September was also uh, very much a community outreach uh, program. It was done with the help of staff and community trust, as well as several local primary schools. And now for a slightly more Halloween-y story coming to us from Sweden. Here, a team of archaeologists have been working on an uninhabited island off the east coast of Sweden called the Blå Jungfung, in English the Blue Virgin, which is a name given to the island by sailors to ward off the evil spirits they believe to live there. It is not known how long the island has been associated with these evil spirits and witchcraft, but evidence shows that it might actually be a very ancient belief, reaching as far back as the Stone Age, possibly even further. The island shows intense activity during the Mesolithic period, and the team has been concentrating their research around two caves which have been giving substantial evidence for ritualistic behavior. One of the caves is described as a strange hollow which has been hammered out of one of its vertical walls, accompanied by a fireplace at its base. It is believed that the hollow is man-made, and its purpose is still purely conjectural, but the layout of the rest of the cave may provide some answers as to what the cave was for. One of the archaeologists on the team from Kalmar uh, County Museum in Sweden, Papmel Dufay, is quoted saying, The entrance to the cave is very narrow, and you have to squeeze your way in. However, once you are inside, only half of the cave is covered, and you can actually stand above the cave and look down into it, almost like a theater or a stage below. The hollow and fireplaces stand at the center of this stage area, and other caves and shelters have provided further evidence, such as a hammerstone, a grinding area, stone tools, and the fossilized bones of 9,000-year-old seals. Now the question is, are these seals the remains of ritual feasts or simply the evening meals of fishermen? More information may be revealed as the site investigations continue. And with that story, we come to the end of the Stone Pages Archaeology News Podcast. I would like to thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. And I would like to invite you to come back next week when another episode comes up. For those of you who haven't gotten your fill of prehistoric news, you can always go to news.stonepages.com to view the sources for all of our stories, as well as the details for the stories we covered today, as well as any stories that we missed. For those of you who have Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter using the Twitter handle at StonePages. And as for now, I have been your host, Philip Hansen. Thank you very much, and I will see you next week.